0: Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight in Romans and other things. But before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come together this evening to spend time together to study your Word. Your Word is absolute truth, and it is your Word that sets us free in our soul because, first of all, it gives us that which we need to know regarding salvation, and second, how to live, how to think, how to orient our thinking to reality, reality being defined by you and your plan. Now, Father, as we continue to probe into the depths of these uh, difficult technical subjects related to the origin of sin, transmission of sin, the guilt of sin. We pray that you'd give us clarity of thought and help us to understand what we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into the technical details of Romans 5, we have a couple of matters of uh, contemporary interest to go over. For those of you who haven't, heard about this yet. I thought this is something that needed people needed to be made aware of. As most of you know, there's a lot of uh, de- legislative discussion about developing a bill on hate crimes, and the hate crimes legislation defines certain speech. That is, as we'll see in the second topic of current events, certain speech is being hateful just because it in the eyes of human viewpoint, uh, our human viewpoint culture disenfranchises or marginalizes or uh, doesn't validate somebody's uh, sin nature and their carnal responses. So uh, there are all kinds of problems with uh, hate crimes legislation, and we have certain legislators who have no idea of anything, any kind of absolutes, who constantly try to slip this stuff in. So. Senators Edward Kennedy, no surprise there, and Gordon Smith, who's a Republican from Oregon, have found, an I'm just reading what was sent to me, have found it, and these editorial comments are not mine, they're already embedded in the email, have found another underhanded way to push their own agendas. Yesterday they filed their hate crimes bill as an amendment number 2067, to the Department of Defense reauthorization bill currently under consideration on the Senate floor. In doing so, they blatantly promoted the homosexual agenda, which is completely unrelated to the bill's focus, which is national sovereignty and defense. So you need to be aware that this kind of thing is going on, and if you're so inclined to discuss these things with uh, legislators, then that's a good idea. I think we live in a time today when Christians just can't be quiet and passive anymore. And it doesn't mean that you're going out, marching in the streets, or anything of that nature. But as citizens, it's our responsibility just as a citizen in in the nation to be involved and to be informing our legislators of our views and our opinions and encouraging them in the right direction. And as Christians, of course, your views and opinions should be influenced by your uh, biblical worldview. Well, see, the problem with this kind of hate crimes legislation is who defines what hate is. I, just the very idea gives, <clears throat> gives me pause. I mean, if somebody gets angry and kills somebody, isn't that by definition a hate crime? I mean, this is just a purely uh, manipulative way to go after certain people for what's considered politically incorrect sins. But that's not new in the history of this country. There have been politically and socially unacceptable sins going all the way back to, to slavery in the 19th century that ha- gained a certain stigma by certain uh, segments of society, and they wanted to make it a broader category uh, crime than what was uh, necessitated. If something is criminal, it's criminal. That's all that needs to be said about it. But we live in an era today when nobody wants to hear the truth, and if anybody believes there is a truth as opposed to equally valid competing truths, plural, then they are deemed the enemy of society. And if you saw it this last Saturday, if any of you still take this rag called the Houston Chronicle, uh, their religion section which has historically been much better than most religion sections and probably the only thing I ever look at in the paper whether I agree with it or disagree with it at least they try to be somewhat informative they had an article here and the big banner headline is what is the most dangerous idea in religion today did you all see that Oh, this is, this is really good now they asked some very interesting people what they thought the most dangerous idea in religion today is, and you can just pretty much pre- ju- predetermine what their answers are going to be once you hear who they are, if you're, you know, informed as to who these people are. Well, the first person they asked is Rabbi Harold Kushner. Now, Rabbi Harold Kushner shouldn't even have the term rabbi in front of his name because he is, uh, basically, uh, he's famous because he wrote, um, wrote the book on um, when bad things happen to good people. I remember looking at that years ago, and his answer is that, that God just, bad things happen to good people because God just can't control anything. He's just this little bitty God who just doesn't have any power, and poor thing, he just doesn't want bad things to happen to good people, but he just is too impotent, and he can't do anything about it. So that tells you a little bit about him. And he, the smaller God gets, the bigger man gets in anybody's system. So that's his view, and of course, what's his answer? He says, the most dangerous idea in religion today is my religion is right. He says, there's a sense that in order for me to be right, everyone who disagrees with me is wrong. Well, that's what being right means. (laughs) If something is right, that means that everything else is wrong. But what he doesn't understand is that he is making an equal assertion of truth and validity and his proposition that all things are right and there is no one truth is just as dogmatic just as dangerous and just as exclusive of the christian idea that there is only one truth as he deems the christian christianity to be so by his very assumption that the, the idea that there is one truth, i.e., my religion is right, he has just said that the most dangerous idea in religion today is Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And if you believe that, you're dangerous. You are a danger to society. See, that's going to classify you one day as a hater. That will be hate crime to say there's only one way to God because you're saying that he's wrong and people like him. So uh, that's his answer. Now the second person they went to is another one of those people I just love to kind of poke fun at because they're just so easy to poke fun at if you come from a Christian position, and that's Deepak Chopra. And you can go down to the religion section of Barnes & Noble or uh, in Walden Books or Books, whatever, what's the other one, uh, any of the bookstores, and you'll find all of his books there. And people just think this simpering, sentimental self-promotion uh, uh, self <clears throat> is so, so wonderful. And you'll never guess what he, how he answers the question. He says the most dangerous idea is my God is the only tr- is the only true God, and my religion is the only true religion. Gee, just like Rabbi Kushner. This guy's a this guy's a Hindu. Okay, then uh, not to leave them out because we wouldn't want to ignore the Muslims because you know they're so peaceful they might b- blow up the newspaper. So. They interview uh, a man by, who I'm not well, un, un, unfamiliar with, Abdulani Ahmed An-Naim, is uh, a, a allegedly an internationally recognized scholar of Islam and human rights. Of course, he believes Islam is a peaceful religion, so he's not very much of a scholar of Islam, and he doesn't understand anything about human rights, not starting at the Bible. But he said... Um, He he talks about the fact that the notion of superiority and exclusivity is inherent to religious beliefs, and it can be dangerous and not dangerous. So for him, the whole idea of missionary work is the most dangerous idea in the world. So he just steps back because missionary work flows out of the idea that I have the truth and you need to hear it. So he is simply sidestepping the initial uh, statement and going to a second one. So everybody is uh, against the Christians, and they did go to a man who is uh, uh, fairly alert and fairly capable at expressing himself, and very well educated. And I've happened to have met him on on several of occasions, and that's Doctor Richard Land, who's the uh, head of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious uh, Liberties. Convention. He's got a Ph.D. from a Baptist seminary as well as a Ph.D. from Oxford. So he's fairly, fairly well educated, he's very articulate, and he is very good at handling these kinds of things. And he said that uh, the most dangerous thing is violence in the name of, of religion. And he's addressing the key point. Just because you're right doesn't give you the position to... Uh, coerce somebody through violence and to force that on somebody else there has to be freedom So, which is something that apparently everybody else has missed they just don't like the idea they just can't stand it in their arrogant little souls that somebody out there is saying that, that they're wrong and so they have to fight against it but this is the direction of our culture when representatives of Judaism, Hinduism, and Islam all basically agree that the biggest danger in religious ideas today is and it's just a veiled um, statement that they make, but what they're really going after is Christianity. So we live in an age today when Christianity is under assault from every direction in the world. And as believers... This is one of the reasons historically that you have to understand apologetics because apologetics is that field of theology that teaches you to defend and to give an answer for what you believe. And that doesn't mean you have to give an answer to the person next to you every time they say something that is wrong. It just means that you can put up your own defense shields Because you know what the truth is and you can articulate that rationally to yourself and you understand why you believe what you believe because Satan is always attacking at numerous fronts and we always have to be prepared. So this is why uh, Peter wrote that we're to always be ready to give an answer, apologia, uh, apologia, give an answer for the hope that is within us. But just as the early church, in the early era of the church, you have the, the, one of the first periods is known as the age of the apologists. When they break things down, you have the age of the apostolic fathers, which aren't the apostles but the group that knew the apostles that comes right after them. Then the age of the theologians and the age of the apologists comes towards the end of the second century and into the third century because as Christianity spread out, and began to impact the Roman Empire. It came to the the attention of the intellectual elites uh, throughout the Roman Empire and so the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers and the, the thinkers within the Roman Empire began to attack the intellectual claims of Christianity and so it was necessary for the early church to begin to articulate their response to these attacks so that people would understand that you didn't have to put your brain in neutral in order to believe in Christianity and in divine revelation so that the foundations were laid in the early church and that really very little has changed from their initial uh, arguments and their initial writings and a lot can be learned from reading them okay well that's enough for current events now let's get into our passage in Romans chapter 5. We're studying Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 in order to understand the answer to the question how did sin originate and how is sin transmitted from Adam to the rest of the race because in our passage in Hebrews chapter 7 we have the statement that Levi paid time, uh, uh, <coughs> that uh, Levi Levi uh, paid ties to Melchizedek while he was in the loins of Melch, uh, while he was in the loins of Abraham. And so this has given rise as a proof text to a whole theology based on, uh, both, uh, seminalism and based on, uh, traditionism. And these theologies in, you know, in, inform a lot of things. Now the, the thing about theology that's so fascinating is because a lot of these Ideas or assumptions that most people never take out of the box and look at and yet they affect so many things and as I've been doing a lot of work on this because there's some aspects of this and some questions of this that I've never fully settled in my own mind so I'm trying to settle those and see if I can dot a few I's and cross a few T's that I haven't dotted and crossed before. See if I can unscrew a few more inscrutable things. And um, and so it's, it's, it's difficult because very little has been written and very little is thought about it. And I, for example, today I took off the shelf a commentary I hadn't had a chance to look at yet. It's written by a well-known contemporary uh, professor of theology at an evangelical school. He's been teaching Romans for years. It's not Dallas Seminary. Uh, he's been teaching Romans for years, and he has come out with about a six or seven hundred page uh, commentary on Romans, which is considered one of the best. And yet, when he comes to this issue in Romans chapter five, verses twelve to fourteen, and he comes to to address. This issue of the transmission of the sin, sin and the sin nature, he said he just cites in two sentences uh, the the passage from Hebrews chapter seven without ever investigating the mechanics. And this is too often what happens. I always get questions. In fact, I've had two by email this this week related to commentaries where people ask me, "Well, what do you think about this commentary?" And what do you think about that commentary? And and there's good and bad things about every commentary. And those of you who have been coming to the uh, class that Ike's teaching on how to study the Bible for yourself need to uh, are going, going to run into this in a couple of weeks. He's going to start talking about the kinds of resources you can go to that just as you're reading the Bible. You ought to have some good resources that you can go to just to answer answer some questions. And you ought to have a good set of Bible encyclopedias. You ought to have a good uh, single or two-volume commentary. Now, in the past, in terms historically speaking, I would never recommend a one-volume commentary because with the exception of one recent set that came out in the early 80s, and I'm always amazed how many people don't know about this, uh, one set that came out in the early 80s, most commentaries have a general modus operandi, and that is when they come to something difficult, they ignore it. And so as soon as you're reading through a passage and you say, wait a minute, what does that mean, and, and how does that relate to this, you go and look at it, and they just completely ignore the whole issue. And they just go right past it as if it doesn't exist. So that's standard Operating procedure. Now, in the early 80s, Dallas Theological Seminary published a two-volume commentary set called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. They have one volume on the New Testament, one volume on the Old Testament, and each each book was written by a different professor at Dallas Seminary. And so, there are some that are a little weaker than others, and and uh, <coughs> I can I know which ones those are because I personally know almost every uh, contributor to the Bible Knowledge Commentary because those men were my professors when I was at Dallas so I, I know them well I know their theology I know their theological nuances and proclivities and strengths and weaknesses and all those kinds of things but one of the things that really makes it helpful is that that was part of their philosophy of writing this was that they weren't going to dodge the issues and in most cases they will say there's disagreement over this and these are the three options and these are the strengths and weaknesses with each of these three options but you're going to run into problems for example I think uh, Martin here emailed me the other day to ask me about uh, some commentary notes that are out on the internet by Tom Constable who's a professor at Dallas Seminary, been a professor of mine and I have a set of I have a copy of those notes on my computer, and he has some. He's good in some places, but he completely rejects the reference of Isaiah uh, 14 to Satan, which is what we're getting into on Sunday morning, and to Ezekiel 28 as, as Satan, and then John and he references John Martin, who uh, <coughs> wrote the Isaiah commentary in the Bible knowledge commentary and at some levels I'm sure that on some passages uh, John did a fairly good job but I also know that John had a position as academic dean at Dallas Seminary in the 80's and his unstated agenda was to reshape the faculty at Dallas Seminary and he was hiring new uh, younger faculty members that were willing to question the status quo of the Chafer-Walvard-Ryrie view of, of theology and dispensationalism, and he got caught in some problems in the late 80s, fortunately, and he, he was removed, but otherwise he was on the fast track to become the president of Dallas Seminary but he was using the, the second most powerful position on any school faculty is the academic dean no most people don't know that because he's in charge of hiring firing he he oversees the faculty and he determines many issues that are related to what actually comes across in the classroom and so he w- he wrote the commentary on Isaiah but he rejects the the uh, view that Isaiah 14 relates to the fall of Satan and we're going to cover a lot of that on Sunday morning so I'm not going to uh, get off on that but you have to realize there's there's no one book that you can go to or one commentary set where you're always going to agree you always have to think you always have to uh, have your grid on and be thinking about what you're reading but there's great charts in there there are there's a tremendous amount of information and I frequently go there, and I'm am amazed at just how how much they were able to cram into such a such a small uh, two-volume commentary. So I I do recommend that. But everybody should have in their in their own personal library good Bible uh, two-volume Bible commentary set a good Bible encyclopedia of three or four volumes or a good Bible dictionary just as a, as a reference so that they can look at things when they're just reading their Bible at home and they say, hmm, wonder where that place is or wonder who that person was or wonder what was significant about that. They have some place that they can uh, look and get answers to those kinds of basic questions. Well... Here we are in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And I just want to remind you of the little overview of the section that we went into last week. Verse 12 begins a comparison and contrast with between Adam's sin and how it affects the human race and Christ's work on the cross and how it affects the human race. And as Paul begins to develop this, he sets up the first part of the comparison and says, Just as... But remember, if you're doing a comparison, you're going to say, just as this, so this. Well, he never gets to the so this until you get down to verse 18, because as he sets up the first part of the comparison, just as through one man's sin entered the world, he recognizes that there are a lot of places people could go incorrectly in this analogy, in this comparison and contrast between Adam's sin and its effect on the human race and Christ's death and its effect on the human race so he stops he just abruptly pauses in the middle of this uh, this comparison at the end of verse 12 that's why you have the m dash there in most of your english versions and you have a, a, par- a parenthetical aside that is put in there in verse 13 i just noticed in my uh, in my english bible they have the whole section from verse 13 down to verse 17 offset in parentheses and that is a good editorial move to show people that Paul is stopping and he is he is on a rabbit trail, on an Anacaluthan to uh, explain a few things and to make sure people understand, first of all, what sin and death is all about and how uh, death spread because of sin in verses 13 and 14. And then in 15 and seven, through 17, he is going to contrast Christ's work and Adam's sin. And this is clear because of the uh, initial statements in verse 15 and verse 16. Notice verse 15 begins, but the free gift is not like the offense. See, there's places you can't go in this analogy. The free gift, that is Christ's work, isn't like the offense of Adam in this way. And then in verse 16 he says, And the gift, that is the free gift of salvation, is not like that which came through the one sin. So you have to be careful in your comparison and contrast between the uh, sin of Adam and the work of Christ. There's only one particular area that he is focusing on. And that is that basically he's saying as Christ and his work on the cross is the soul, is the person who is solely responsible for our salvation, Adam is the one who is solely responsible for sin and the spiritual death of the human race. Let me say that again. He is saying that just as Christ is the soul, is the only person who is solely responsible for our salvation, not up to us it's his work on the cross that pays the penalty so adam is the only one responsible for sin and our spiritual death so he introduces the concept in verse 12 of of death he says therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men Because all sinned. Now we looked at some of the aspects of this last time. I'm not going to review all of the exegesis. But the main question that we're answering here is how did death spread to all men? Now one thing, I haven't created a slide on this at this point yet, but we'll bring it out later, is that you have the word death used twice in this passage. Sin is used three times. Death is used twice. But what's interesting in the in the Greek is that the every time in Romans 5 and Romans 6 that Paul uses the word death, he puts it with the definite article. And the first time you see it, that kind of strikes you as, as well, that's interesting. Why did he put the definite article here? Or actually in Greek, there's, it's not definite because there's no indefinite article. It's just the article. Why did he put the article with the noun? What's he trying to emphasize here? Because that's, that's the point. There's about 10 or 12 different ways that Greeks use an article in grammar, and it's not always like we use the definite article in English to show that something is definite as opposed to indefinite. In Greek, you have different, uh, meanings for the word, or for your, for your article, and so you have to Think about why is he doing this? And I stopped and, uh, did a study and realized that in Romans 5 and on into Romans 6, he always uses that article. He is talking about, he's emphasizing this death as a unique kind of death. It is not just any, any particular, any particular death. And so we have to ask this question of how does death spread to all men? he sets up the analogy between the just as at the beginning and then he's going to break that and he introduces this word let me go back to here just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus and I pointed out last time that this word thus is hutos which indicates what follows thus or that is in this manner sin, death spread to all men in what manner? because all sinned, and what you must understand there, they all sinned positionally in Adam. So we would translate that, corrected translation, in this manner, that is what I'm about to explain, death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is the cause, death is the result. But we have to take some time to understand this, and we see it in the passage because you have a chiasm here sin is mentioned first then death then death is mentioned again and then sin so it sets up this chiastic structure which puts the emphasis and draws our attention to the middle elements whatever that is in the chiasm and here we have death the focus here is on that transmission of death from Adam to his progeny so this occurs through one man And we have something interesting here that I didn't point out last time. We have (coughs) the Greek preposition dia, which is then used, again. if you notice down here you have this the the second verb I have in the lower part of this chart, is diarchomai, which is a combination of the root verb erchomai, meaning to go or to come, and dia as the preposition that is now prefixed to the verb. And dia is a preposition of distribution as one of its nuances. So the point is that anything that that is distributed, you're going to say that goes through something, and that's where you would use this particular preposition. So the focus here is on how sin permeates the human race, and as a result, death, the result of sin, goes throughout uh, the human race. This is a result of sin. So thus, in this manner, death spread to all men because all sin. Now, there's two views, as I've pointed out, on how this transmission occurred. The first is seminalism, that the entire human race, body and soul, was genetically present in Adam. Thus, according to seminalism, God considered every human being to be physically participating in in Adam's original sin and thus receiving the same penalty. Even though you weren't there, you're, you're there physically and so you're, you're accountable. The other view is federalism. view that Adam stood as the head and representative of the human race. Adam's decisions were on behalf of all humanity. God viewed Adam's sin as the act of all people through representation and thus Adam's penalty is judicially imputed to all mankind this view is most consistently linked to the creationist view of the origin and transmission of the soul, and the point I'm making is that actually this isn't uh, an either or, it's a both and that in some ways yes, we are all linked together the human race has a common genetic unity and because of that common genetic unity we're all equally guilty we're all equally connected biologically to Adam and to one another that biological seminal connection also allows Jesus the second person of the Trinity to become a human being and in the plan of salvation as a human being he can die for everybody else in humanity so you have to have that seminal connection that's true but that's not all there is to it there's also the federal headship aspect that we are guilty because Adam is our representative. And that connects over to Jesus Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. He can die for the rest of humanity because he's genetically related to the rest of humanity, but he is representing us on the cross. And so that ties to the federal aspect. So they're both true. And when you look at it that way, it it fleshes out your whole understanding of what of the dynamics of Adam as the first Adam, Christ as the second Adam, and what is happening on the cross and why it had to happen that way. We also looked at these views on the imputation of sin, and I'll come back to discuss this other issue later, but I spent a good bit of time also studying the fact that there's a, between the Pelagian view and the Augustinian view, There were two other views that popped up historically in the early church. One was the semi-Pelagian view, and one was the semi-Augustinian view, but I didn't think I would confuse you with all the technicalities of that uh, as we go through this because it gets there's a lot of uh, rabbit trails on that that gets us away from the primary thing that we're looking at uh, right now. But the one thing I keep wanting to go back to here is that most people... Most evangelicals, even though there's a huge rise of Calvinism in the last few years, probably the vast majority of Christians in America are of a Pelagian or an Arminian view. The difference is, that in the Pelagian view, man's not even sick. He's not affected by Adam's sin at all. He gets to make his own decision whether or not he's going to be a sinner. Every man is born just the same way Adam was created, and in the semi-Pelagian view and to a greater degree in the Arminian view, the problem is that they just view man as basically sick. So in all of these views, the Pelagian view, the Arminian view, the semi-Pelagian view, the problem is that man is basically good and if man is basically good then your understanding of society your understanding of problems your understanding of what is necessary to solve problems when you have criminal problems when you have relational problems when you have discipline problems with your your cute little infant child who won't obey you if they're basically good you're going to treat them in discipline in a like dr uh, dr spock and if you think like a Christian, you're going to think like Solomon in the Proverbs, and you're not going to spare the rod. You're going to drive the sin far from him with the rod of correction. So you see, it's it all depends on how you view basic human nature. It's going to affect... Many things, it, it'll affect your view of economics. It'll affect your view of government and how much power you're willing to give uh, government. Because if the people in government are just as corrupt and depraved as you are, then you don't want to give them too much power because then they will tyrannize you. And so this has a tremendous impact on how you view many, many things in life. Anything that involves people is going to be affected by your view of Their basic nature and relationship to Adam. And the difference between the federal view and, and even the seminal view, which is, I have here, it classifies the Augustinian view, is that sin and guilt are, are imputed to every human being. That's this third column over here. Depravity is total, sin and guilt are imputed. That's true for both of those positions in both similists and uh, those who believe in federal headship agree on this. What I mean by guilt, I've thought about this after class last week because most of you have been so brainwashed by Freudian emotionalism that when you hear the word guilt, what you think of is guilt feelings, feeling guilty. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the legal guilt of Adam's sin. In the other systems, that legal guilt only comes upon you if you sin. But in a biblical view, in these two views, that guilt is imputed to you at birth. You are legally guilty. Therefore, that sin has to be paid for and there has to be... uh, and, of course, that leads into imputation of righteousness and justification. So these are all very important things to, to understand as we try to understand the, the, rich, the rich complexity of our salvation. So we stopped last time with these four questions. What is sin? What is the penalty for sin? What's the sin nature's relationship to the corporeal human body? And how is this passed on? We looked at the first one last time by looking at the different words for sin that we have in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, and in the New Testament. And all of these have to do, we boil it all down to the fact that they all have to do with violating an absolute objective standard. There is a violation of an absolute objective standard. And that standard is... Sometime mistakenly expressed as the law, but that's a confusing way. And you'll get into uh, some theologians who will talk about, well, the law of God is really just his character. But the law is an expression of his character. It usually follows various instances. And too often when you just use the word law of God, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? The Mosaic law. So it's a very confusing thing. The the standard is God's character, his righteousness. We go back to the teaching that we've had over and over again on the integrity of God, that the integrity of God is composed of his righteousness and his justice, as well as his love and his grace, which is an outworking of everything. But his righteousness is the standard of his character. It's the standard. That's the idea. That's where we find that absolute uh, external objective standard it is the character of God and he reveals that character to mankind progressively through the pages of scripture we start off in Genesis chapter 1 Genesis chapter 2 Genesis chapter 3 each time as each chapter goes by we learn more about God and who he is so we start off defining sin as that which violates and that which uh misses the standard of God's character of God's uh, righteousness it's defined as lawlessness as an act of disobedience as unrighteousness as a transgression or a twisting of the standard all of these different words are used so when we summarize this last time I simply said that that uh, to summarize all that I said that it is a violation of God's character now the first sin that entered the universe entered in through lucifer and i'm not going to take the time in our study here in hebrews to go through the issues in isaiah 14 if i were teaching this and i weren't covering the same thing in revelation on sunday morning then i would do that but those who are listening to the to the hebrews messages need to go over and listen to the angelic conflict special that I'm covering on Revelation on Sunday morning because that's where I'm going to go through Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And as I pointed out both on Sunday morning and here, is that we live in an era today when so many things that you and I were taught were what the Bible said when we were younger are being questioned now by people we thought we trusted, by schools we thought were orthodox, And they're shifting. And and what's interesting is I find that, and you'll you'll probably agree with me, how many times you see, see people change their views, all of a sudden they go to this church, well, I heard this new view. We just get enamored with new views well, so-and-so came along and he's got a couple of doctorates and he's not as old as doctor so-and-so or pastor so-and-so, and he realizes that Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 or both of them don't talk about Satan. This is new stuff. Therefore, it must be better stuff. It must be better scholarship. And that's just simply not true. Sometimes we do come across new information, better information, and as we stand on the shoulders of those that go before us, we're able to study, think things through, and come to a better understanding. But when you come along and you're reinterpreting passages that have been understood by the vast majority of solid Orthodox theologians down through the centuries, and now all of a sudden you're coming along and saying, well, those don't have anything to do with Satan at all. You've got a real problem. Wait a minute. Maybe Genesis 3 doesn't have to do with Adam at all. Maybe he was just a maybe that's just a metaphorical figure for mankind and that's all it's talking about. Now see you you've, you've entered a slippery slope and one thing is going to Uh, lead to another now i'm not saying that everybody or anybody who believes that isaiah 14 ezekiel 28 don't refer to the original sin of satan are beginning to shift on genesis 3 i'm not i'm not saying that i'm saying it opens the door to that kind of a thing and in the study that i've done several times now to the point that i'm i'm getting tired of doing having to go back and restudy this but it's always helpful to do that is that the vast majority? It was almost a monolithic position in the early church that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 referred to Satan, either typologically or directly. Lutheran Calvin didn't didn't hold it. They thought it was historical that it referred to either the the literal King of Tyre or Nebuchadnezzar, but it just doesn't fit at that historical framework, and that's a, was generally a minor position. But in the last 150 years with the rise of historical criticism, which is a bad word. You know, that, that's, that's one of those pornographic words, profanity, that you shouldn't hear in seminaries. But historical criticism isn't a good thing, it's a bad thing. It is the methodology of liberalism. And it, the first thing it attacks usually is authorship of Scripture. And the reason you always attack the traditional view of the author of Scripture is because once you get it away from prophetic authorship or apostolic authorship, now you start to question the whole doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy, and these things gradually uh, begin to erode. I heard of somebody who should be orthodox, I heard of him just recently teaching that it really wasn't John the Apostle that wrote the book of Revelation or Second John or Third John, it was John the Elder who's another person. But since we don't know who in the world John the Elder was, if he's a distinct person from uh, the Apostle John, if we don't know who John the Elder was, then we no longer have him connected to the apostolic foundation of the New Testament. And the argument for centuries has been that we know that of the, the, uh, the veracity of the New Testament because all of the authors were either apostles or they were working with an apostle. Luke worked with Paul, Mark worked with Peter, and so we have apostolic verification, Ephesians 2.20, the church is founded on the apostles and the prophets, and so this becomes a foundation, but once you begin to attack that, then other things begin to domino, and it was interesting, I would heard this last week, and so uh, I did some, I googled this on the internet the other day, and one of the prominent... Um, prominent proponents of this view is a Roman Catholic theologian who doesn't believe anything about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. His name's Raymond Brown, and he is considered to be the modern uh, Johannine scholar, and he's the expert. And he doesn't even believe the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. It was the Johannine community. It It was a committee effort by a bunch of his students. But he's considered to be the expert. So the whole idea that John the Apostle didn't write Revelation comes out of a group of theologians who question inerrancy, infallibility, uh, divine authorship of Scripture to begin with. So these things are very important to look at all these kinds of things because they tend to erode gradually over time and not in one fell swoop. So we, I pointed out last time that sin ver, first entered the universe through this creature identified as Lucifer or literally in the Hebrew it's Hillel Ben-Shahar ben and that the second determinative sin in the universe is that of Adam and Adam's sin impacts man in two basic areas. First of all, in the sin nature, something corrupts the nature of man at the instant that he sins we call it spiritual death he loses something in his makeup that on one side gives him the ability to orient to God to understand God and to relate to God and on the other hand there it's not just a loss if you come out of a Roman Catholic background what you were always taught was that sin was a privation that may be a new word to some of you but the uh, first time I ran across it was when I was taking uh, classes over at uh, the University of St. Thomas and first my first real exposure to any in-depth Roman Catholic theology and they define sin as privation. It is a lo- only a loss of something. But see, uh, Protestant theology and, and biblical theology, Protestant theology is right not because it's Protestant but because it's biblical. Now, y'all j- re- get that email this week. It was going around. Everybody was talking about how the isn't it sad that the Pope says we're not a church. We're not going to heaven. Doesn't recognize us. You know, this was another papal announcement this last week that they're the only true church. Everybody else is just playing a game. So, just thought you wanted to know, know that to have a little chuckle. So you have. Uh, You have this sin nature that is not just the loss of righteousness or the loss of a relationship to God but it is the positive uh, the the positive gaining of evil and an orientation of corruption that man is now corrupt and death enters into the human race physically there is a soul corruption that comes from sin and there is a physical and bodily corruption that comes from sin and this is passed on genetically that's the seminal side that that we have talked about on the other hand there is guilt that is passed on genuine guilt that's the imputation side so we have the sin nature which is passed on genetically and we have the imputation of adam's guilt to that sin nature that's a legal guilt that is imputed to us at birth so that his disobedience is our disobedience and we are just as guilty as he is because he was our federal our federal head this goes back to understanding Genesis two seventeen, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you that you eat of it you will surely die so we have to ask the question what kind of death is this now you, you've all heard this is spiritual death most of your lives you've heard this this is spiritual death Romans 5 I believe is talking about spiritual death over against um, physical death because it uses this the death now 1 Corinthians 15 uses the same articular construction with death But the context is different because the contrast in 1 Corinthians 15 is with resurrection. Resurrection is bodily, physical resurrection. It has to do with the the resurrection is in contrast to physical death. So the context of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the death that's being talked about there is physical death. That's not what's being talked about in Romans chapter 5. So when you come to 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die, we learn that death, as physical death, enters into the universe with Adam's sin. Therefore, you can't have all these geologic ages preceding Adam with all the stratification and fossilization of dead things prior to Adam because death as a principle... Comes into effect, according to 1 Corinthians 15, with Adam's sin. It's clearly physical death there, but this is not the case here. It's talking about the death. It's a totally different passage, different context. And it's talking about death comes through sin, and this death spreads to all men. And so we have to ask the question what kind of death is Paul talking about here? Now, just since I already introduced the idea of creation evolution, One thing you should think about, most of you have become very well educated in the last few years on a lot of issues related to creation evolution. It is one of the key battlefield areas in worldview, and all of us need to keep up to date with these things, and we need to be reading things that come out from the Institute for Creation Research, and their website is icr.org and answersingenesis.org. But there are some things that I would not agree with them on, and one of them is, I keep running into when I read these creationists, is that they all want to take the penalty of sin as death. The Genesis, I mean, it's physical death. The Genesis 2.17 is talking about physical death. And I just scratched my head. In fact, I was talking with someone not long ago, a, friend, a good friend of mine, uh, who's also a theologian, well-known. I'm not going to mention his name because you all know him. And uh, we were we were debating this. And he said, where do you get this idea that this is spiritual death in Genesis 2.17? I said, Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1 is a key passage for trying to understand this concept or validating this concept of spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1, you he made alive, that's regeneration, who what? Were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not physical death. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. At the same time, they were physically alive. So there is a spiritual death in contrast to a physical death. That the first time you have physical death mentioned in the early part of Genesis comes at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2 indicates that that death is going to be immediate. And that death is that separation from God and that loss of something. That when somebody is spiritually dead, they're missing something. At regeneration, you are born again. What happens at birth? Something comes into existence, right? Well, for a lot of theologians, may surprise you, for a lot of theologians, because they don't think of spiritual death the way you have been taught to think of it, they think of regeneration mostly as an ethical change that takes place. It's not that you get something you didn't have. Nothing comes into existence. It's just that you sort of have this moral reformation that takes place inside your soul, so golly gee, you're not going to sin as bad as you used to. See how all these things kind of connect theologically. I don't have time to connect all the dots for you, but that affects a certain segment of the lordship uh, Calvinist view of perseverance of the saints that when you as a, as a believer you get regenerate then, then you've got something you're just not going to commit certain sins you're, you're going to you're, you're not quite as you, you, not as bad as you were before you were saved you, 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 but it's, it's mostly a nomenclature thing it's not a substantive birth to something new in your nature that you didn't have before and the way we usually describe this is that man is made up of three parts, a soul, a body, and a spirit. The term human spirit is is used, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to describe that com, uh, immaterial component of the makeup of man's uh, person that allows him to relate to God and to understand God and communicate with God and fellowship with God. And that was lost at, in Adam's fall, and it's gained... In regeneration. That's what's given birth to because you're born without it. Adam lost it and then he got it back. We never had it to begin with and we get it when we, uh, trust in Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, you have the penalty for sin is spiritual death. This is why Christ dies on the cross, pays the penalty for sin before he dies physically. He says it is finished. In John chapter, uh, 20, or nineteen there when he describes the death. John says, "And when it was finished, to die which is the perfect uh, active indicative there of teleo, uh, meaning it is finished." John, just to make sure we get the point, he says, "When it was finished, Jesus said it's finished." There's that repetition there. It's it, twice it's stated. John says it. Jesus said it. When it was finished, it, Jesus said it was finished. And that indicates that nothing more can be done. The physical death did not add to the payment for sin. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the consequences when God calls to Adam and comes and uh, gets a confession from Adam as to what happened. Uh, Basically, he blamed the, the, uh, the woman and she blamed the serpent. And then God uh, told them how this was going to affect them. He said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you've cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Does it talk about physical death there? No. But if physical death is the penalty, then that's what you'd be getting there. But I'm, I'm making this distinction. Then he talks to, goes on to talk to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bru- bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel called the proto-evangelium. To the woman, he says, I will gr- greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Is death mentioned anywhere in there? But God said there was penalty was death in Genesis 2:17. But he never mentions death when he talks to the woman. He's talking about the consequences now of spiritual death, that number one, it's going to affect the command to multiply and fill the earth. Now that process is going to involve sorrow and pain. And instead of the husband and wife working together as a team, Uh, She would desire to dominate him and to impose her will and her agenda on him, and he would do the same. So when you have two unrestrained sin natures living together in a house without any doctrine, each person is going to try to dominate the other person and impose their agenda on the other person. And so that is the result of the fall. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Why did he curse the ground? Because he told Adam his responsibility was to take care of the ground, the, the garden. And so his work environment now becomes toilsome. is isn't that he didn't have work or responsibility before the fall. It is now that work is going to become toilsome. I'm not going to ask for any men to say amen. Amen. Um, and there are going to be thorns and thistles that are produced by the soil and make it difficult. It's going to be in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. It's now going to be difficult. How many people are, fa- are faced continuously with financial problems that ultimately come back to work and employment issues? And then finally, he says, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's our first mention of physical death. And it's listed with all of the other consequences of spiritual death. So the death, that definite article use of the death, is a reference to spiritual death in Romans chapter 5. And this is what gets passed on to all members of the human race. So we go back to Romans chapter 5. And Paul says, just as through one man's sin entered the world and spiritual death through sin, and thus spiritual death spread to all men because all sin, and he breaks it off, but what he's talking about is all sinned in Adam's sin. And that will become uh, clear as we get into verses 16, 17, and 18. 17 says, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Verse 18, therefore, it's through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Uh, verse 19, for it's by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It reinforces this idea of Adam's sin being the determinative thing. So we'll come back next time, and we'll get a little further... I was hoping we would get there tonight, but we didn't. We'll get a little further into verses 13 and 14 and try to understand this parenthesis and the qualifications Paul is putting on his comparison. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that we would be mindful of the fact that we are all fallen. We still have sin natures. We are still prone to self-absorption. We're prone to self-justification. We're prone to self-aggrandizement. And yet, Father, it is only when we humble ourselves under your authority that we're going to have true stability and happiness and meaning in life. You have established authority structures in the creation, not uh, because of sin, but in order to have organization, order, and for your plan to work itself out. And only when we align ourselves in humility to those uh, spheres of authority can we have genuine stability and happiness in life Father we thank you for your grace in saving us we pray that we might constantly put our focus on your word we pray this in Christ's name, Amen